Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 223rd podcast videocast for the week ending January 25th, 2024. Been a very busy week. We're going to get right to it. Uh, first, we'll do the family stuff, and then we'll get right down to business. Want to uh, congratulate Mimi, uh, who is actually one of 14 players selected to be the Olympic Development Northeast Zone team to represent the Northeast Zone at the 2024 USA Water Polo Olympic Development National Championships in Florida, in California, rather. Her team suit is the 2012 gold medal winning USA Women Olympic team suit. And the coaches she now gets to work with are the best of the best. Uh, that's uh, Coach Jill from Annapolis, uh, the Navy camp that she went to will be a coach. And of course, Coach Hannah, who has been absolutely phenomenal, uh, who ran the Brown ODP camp and is a coach at Connecticut College uh, and has just been so wonderful uh, in helping Mimi. Uh, this accomplishment is uh, mind-blowing, is that Mimi has only been playing water polo for less than a year. Uh, we're really happy for her. She's put in a lot of work. Obviously, she's been swimming for many years, so that that helps. Uh, but you know, we we didn't know. We knew she's been working hard, and uh, and um, they played uh, amazingly well as a team up, uh, not up, down in Dallas. And you know, we were waiting with bated breath for I guess it's been a week and a half, and just got the email. So. Great work and onward and upward. This was in Puerto Rico last night. This was the speaker's dinner at the Sequire Investment Conference, which was really amazing. It's put on by a company named Srax, S-R-A-X. Um, I want to thank Chris Miglio for having me down as a speaker and John Najarian, who you all know from CNBC and now Fox Business and from this podcast. Uh, so these were some of the speakers. You, you know many of them. That is, uh, first and foremost, by the way, I want to thank the host. That's Anna Stone from Joseph Gunner. That's a brokerage in New York City. That's John Nigerian. That's Bryn Talkington, who you see on CNBC Halftime Show and Closing Bell all the time. Uh, absolutely wonderful speaker and uh, commentator, as many of you know. That's me. That's Mel uh, Ryans, who works for... Uh, Trade Rebellion with John Nigerian, John's partner, uh, Mark Lepresti, who's also been a, a talking head for many years. Um, uh, and then you have Sean from Gunner, you have Michael, Julia, and you have Alex McCobin, who does Venture Capital. And we just had a wonderful time at the restaurant in the hotel called 1919 in San Juan. Uh, and then is... Javier and Luis. Uh, these are loyal podcast listeners and friends. We met when they were up in New York and uh, they run a terrific business uh, down in Puerto Rico called Select Wealth. And uh, they are going to be working to get some of their clients to uh, get the benefit of Great Hill Capital. But more than important than that, they took me out and picked me up at the hotel and took me to Morton Steakhouse. It was a Monday night. There were a few selections, but it just worked out great because we got the best selection and the best view, uh, restaurant view on the island, which was just 
phenomenal. So I want to thank you for a very special evening, and I'm sure we'll see you soon. Uh, then I want to uh, just show you this was the hotel that they put the speakers up in where the conference was held literally right on the water. It's called the um, Vanderbilt Condonado. Um, so you can see all the views and that's where they held the opening reception for all the family office, investors, public company, CEOs, speakers, uh, investors, etc. And then when uh, uh, Chris invited me down to speak and John made, uh, John made the introduction, I said, look, I, I'd be happy to come down and honored to do that. I have one ask. And he said, what's that? I said, uh, you got to get me on Dorado to play 18. And he, he came through on that and he hooked me up with a guy who I think I'm going to be uh, good friends with for a long time. Uh, Andrew, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You know who you are. I want to thank you for an absolutely phenomenal day, golf, and then uh, lunch at the uh, resort area that everyone knows in Dorado, uh, right on the water again. Just a beautiful time, super smart. He's got, you know, 30, 40 IQ points on me. I mean, you know, <laughs> anyway, so uh, uh, so that's that. Built two incredible businesses, and uh, it was really, really nice to hang out. And by the way, we grew up a couple towns away from each other. We're both Jersey boys, so it was just uh, serendipity for sure. And that was just a special day I'll never forget. Um, look at these course views. It reminds me of the north course of Quinto de Lo... Quinto... Do Lago in Algarve, if you remember, I talked about over the summer in Portugal. This reminded me a lot with these gorgeous houses right on the golf course. Now, today we're abbreviated because I'm going out to, I'm actually uh, got off the plane this morning, working the day here. I got a hotel uh, and then I'm going out tonight, flying out to San Francisco. I'll be seeing a couple of you out there. If you've emailed me and I haven't emailed you back, check. Uh, that's for uh, existing clients and potential clients. Uh, check your email. I'll get back to you when I get back to the hotel. I want to just finish out the day to four o'clock and then uh, focus on that uh, when I'm sitting waiting to get on my flight. And then uh, David Lynn, this is going to sum up my most recent thoughts on the market. Uh, David Lynn's interviews are always amazing. I will change out this video. This is a live one. He'll have an edited one up. But I wanted to get it out because it's been, you know, three, four, five days. I want to get it out in a timely manner and get you the broad, quick picture, actionable picture overview of the market. So we're going to listen here. Thomas Hayes returns to the show. He is a managing member of Great Hill Capital. And we'll be talking about his outlook for 2024 because his outlook for 2023 has been spot on. Welcome back to the show, Thomas. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me, David. Happy New Year to you as well. Your fund has had an extraordinary year last year. You were telling me offline. And by the way, people should watch our prior episodes. I'll put links in the description down below. And your calls for the equity markets to grind higher and just generally speaking, the markets to perform well towards the end of the year. Uh, those have been very, very, very uh, spot on calls. You've also called for the Fed to eventually start easing, which now they're starting to do. Let's start with that, actually. Let's start top down monetary policy first. So uh, just in today, uh, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic expects policymakers to start cutting rates in the third quarter of this year, uh, saying Thursday. This came in from CNBC. Now, third quarter of this year is a little bit farther out than what markets are pricing in. The CME Fed Watch tool is pricing in a cut by March. Where do you stand? 
Yeah, originally I was in that camp where it would be the second half of this year. Um, I was pretty adamant that they'd stop hiking, and that that certainly uh, came to be uh, came to pass. Uh, I do think when you look at core PCE annualized, it's now at the Fed funds, uh, the Fed target, and you have the Fed funds rate at 525, 550. That's 300 basis, over 300 basis points of restrictive policy. So I think, you know, and then the other thing, you look at the non-farm payroll reports, 10 out of the last 11 months have been revised down to the cumulative tune of half a million jobs were over-reported. So I think when you sit back, inflation is a much easier problem to solve than deflation. And if they're too cavalier about the lagged effect of all the aggressive tightening they did in such a short period of time, uh, they may wind up having to do far more cuts than they would have anticipated. So I think the moral of the story is the earlier they get started, the less cuts they'll have to do. I, I think their analysis that they could potentially get away with uh, three cuts is much lower than the market's analysis of expecting you know five, six, seven cuts. I think if they started in March uh, at the latest, on those that three cut plan that may be all they have to do i think if they delay it like bostic was referencing today uh then they may have to do a lot more which would imply a, a soft recession coming we are not in that camp the other thing tool that they have that no one's really paying attention to that i think we're going to hear a lot about on january 31st is going to be tapering the taper uh they may be able to get away with delaying uh, cuts if they stop selling uh, massive amounts of bonds on the opening open market uh, to restrict policy. So get rid of quantitative tightening first, and that may buy you a few additional months from when you have to start cuts. I think the key here is market expectations versus what's going to happen. So you brought up the fact that the markets are expecting six or seven cuts potentially. If you look at the economic data, though, Thomas, what do you think is likely to happen. In other, in other words, does the data suggest a divergence from expectations which could move the markets? It's Goldilocks. I mean, when you look at earnings estimates for 2024, uh, up 12%, 245 on the S&P 500, uh, the one aspect that people aren't pricing in is margin expansion. You had 2023 was a year where every CEO was preparing for a recession that had already happened in 2022. Uh, very few people acknowledge we had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, uh, first and second quarter of 2022. So the recession and the cuts that they made and the efficiencies that they put in place in 2023 in anticipation of a recession are still there. And that's why you see uh expectations now for 50 60 basis points of margin expansion for companies uh as well as 12 uh, percent earnings growth even looking at q4 earnings they were expected to grow at eight percent just on september 30th those expectations are down to one percent so that's not a bar that needs to be jumped over that's a bar that can be walked over and as i always like to say the secret to happiness is low expectations so i think we're going to see as earnings move on uh positive uh beats and some decent guidance which should uh, continue to create some support for equity markets in uh, 2024. So you don't think the highs are in yet for the S&P 500? No, I think we're probably, you know, it's interesting. Everyone's looking for a crash in January or February because we ran too far too fast, so to speak, uh, in the last uh, nine or 10 weeks. And what they fail to realize is that 
the or pay attention to, we like to zoom out. The market has made zero gains in the last two years. So we had the big rally off the COVID lows into 2021. But since late 2021, we're now going on over two years of 0% gains. So as is normal, and we've seen since 2009, uh, four other times where you have these uh, you know, year and a half, two year consolidations with no gains are followed by uh, consistently by rallies of one and a half to two years. And I think that's probably where we are now. That doesn't mean we can't get some chop in the early part of the year, uh, but I, I think we're actually gonna bust out and make new highs before we see some weakness in uh, probably late February uh, through through kind of the March period after everyone, all of the, the last remaining bears that are still hating every step of this rally, which has been monstrous, not just off October 2023, but off October 2022. And I know we were talking about buying semiconductors and tech with you back then when, when you couldn't give away tech. So uh, I think we got to bring in finally those last bunch of people that have no credibility with the bear argument. We got to bring them in. We got to flip them, maybe, maybe 3% up uh, new highs, 4% up new highs and then uh, shake everyone out in, in March or April before we finally have the year end. But in the context of 2024, we are looking for uh, high single digits on the indices, low double digits, because that would be consistent with every uh, the average election year performance since 1928 of 11.28%. And when an incumbent president is running, average performance of 13%. Well, sentiment does seem to be improving. So in your newsletter, uh, great newsletter, by the way, I'll put a link in the description down below, hedgefundtips.com. Yeah. You've covered recently the uh, Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey results, and you've just highlighted a few charts. I'll share with the audience here a few charts that you've highlighted here. Uh, the first one is net percentage of FMS investors who see a stronger global economy in the next 12 months. So it was pretty bleak all throughout 2020, as you know, steady incline uh, upwards, still in negative territory. So I I'm not sure exactly how you would interpret this chart. Sentiment does seem to be improving as the trend. Is that is that something that you've noticed in your everyday yeah. life as well? Yeah, it's it, well, opinion follows trend, right? The price has gone up. We're now breaking out. You know, everyone's like, oh, my goodness. But uh, I will say these are barely coming off the mats. Even if you look at uh, global corporate profit growth outlook uh, expected to improve, that's still negative, uh, as well as uh, to, to what you pointed to, a uh, stronger global economy in the next 12 months. It's literally coming off 2009 low levels, COVID low levels when we didn't even know where we were going we to get a vaccine. In both of these cases, that's the level of pessimism. You can't make this up after, you know, uh, nine, 10, 10, 10 weeks straight up. So again, we got to flip those people. I, I wouldn't, I, I think this could flip positive very, very quickly. Part of that will likely be dependent on the Fed's uh, rhetoric on January 31st, as well as the continuation of earnings season beyond banks. And once you get that exuberance and we break out to new highs, three, four, five percent, I think that would be an opportune time that the, the market comes back and, and uh, uh, retest the breakout level before pushing higher into year end. So uh, a lot of noise with geopolitics and the election and every, everything else. But uh, on balance, uh, companies are in good shape. Well, let's just talk about that. What are the major risks that you would be buying? I think the biggest risk is that Jay Powell worries too much about his legacy and he gets trapped in this false analog of Arthur Burns in the 70s comparing the double peak to, to present conditions. And present conditions are nothing like 
what we experienced in the 70s from a demographic standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from an energy production standpoint, from a geopolitical uh, standpoint. So if he stays t this tight, 300 basis points too tight for too long, uh, he could tip us into a recession, which basically if he does that, um, and that starts to be apparent by September, October, Trump guarantees guaranteed to win the election. Uh, I think that if he gets easier earlier, uh, odds favor an incumbent president uh, getting reelected in, in the absence of a recession. But if, if, a re if, he, if he pushes us into recession, he gives the world Trump. And if he um, uh, kind of starts to ease, which is what he should be doing, uh, the odds are on the incumbent. I, you know, uh, I, I don't talk politics either way, but I'm just saying those are, those are the historical uh, likely outcomes of, of what can happen on the basis of monetary policy. And I'm sure they're cognizant of the uh, political ramifications, but in terms of what they should do from an economic, non-political, apolitical standpoint is they need to remove some of this restriction quickly or they are going to uh, push disinflation, which we're already seeing, onto the brink of deflation, which would cause a recession that is not needed nor wanted. What would cause deflation too much easing? Uh, too no, no, no. Deflation would, would be caused by keeping rates too high for too long and ignoring the lagged effect of what they've already done, one of the steepest hiking cycles uh, in, in over 40 years. Right. Okay. But, um, but they've already signaled that they're, they have an intent to cut. So we have to, we're talking about an event that is outside their expectations as well, right? That's correct. That will push them to keep that, rates higher. That is correct. So on days like this, where you get a decent uh, uh, jobs number uh, and the yields uh, uh, creep a little bit higher, and everyone worries that they're they're not going to cut, I think these are fake out. I think this is noise. I think to your point, their intention is to cut. Now we're just talking about timing. You know, uh, March or the meeting thereafter, but sooner, the, the earlier they go, the less they'll have to do because there is an underlying strength uh, and um, uh, it, it could be a, just a mid-cycle tempering uh, the restriction that they have in place versus having to go full, full tilt easy back again to this normal up and down cyclicality where they take rates all the way up, then they wind up overshooting, they have to take them all the way down. They could probably keep them at a normal cost of capital if they're prudent about getting out of this restrictive mode soon enough. Okay, this is an interesting chart. Uh, same report for the first time since June 21. Large caps expected to underperform small caps, and this chart illustrates that um, the percentage of um, managers interviewed or surveyed think that large caps will outperform small caps is, is lower. Um, where do you stand on this? I agree. Small versus large. Yeah, you agree? I agree. On the basis of the indices doing you know high single digits to low double digits, which would be normal for uh, an election year, what that implies is the Magnificent, magnificent Seven underperformed certainly relative to what they did last year and the real opportunity and the real value and the real performance is going to be found under the surface if you look at forward earnings on 
large cap, i.e. the S&P, you're, you're knocking on the door of 20 times forward, which is high historically, particularly when the Fed funds rate is this high, versus small and mid caps uh, knocking on the door of about 14 times forward. So that's where you're, you're going to find your relative value. That's where you're going to see the outperformance uh, uh, relative to what is actually you re referenced the Bank of America survey. Uh, the most crowded trade is the Magnificent Seven. That doesn't mean it won't stay crowded and it can't stay crowded for a long time because uh, uh, before there was something called the Magnificent Seven, there was Fang and that was crowded for a very long time. But I think they'll perform just fine. I mean, we own uh, Alphabet and Amazon off of the October 2022 lows when you couldn't give, a, give those stocks away. Unfortunately, we didn't grab Meta, uh, but, uh, and that one was a rocket as well. But, uh, I, you know, I, we expect that portion of our portfolio to underperform, but we have no intention of selling those anytime soon. Uh, we think they'll break out over time. Uh, but as far as new money put to work, we, we think they're unique opportunities. Uh, some beaten down turnaround opportunities, but then if you look at the fund manager survey from yesterday, managers are between 0.2 to 1.1 standard devi deviations below their historic uh, average holding in banks, real estate, commodities, UK equities, and even energy. And I think uh, there are discrete opportunities in each of those spaces as well. If you zoom back or zoom out rather and just take a look at the Russell 2000 going back to 2022 over the last a year and a half, almost two years, it's just been range bound, yeah. chopping sideways. Why is it that you think the um, the mid caps and small caps have had a harder time breaking out? Um, obviously, we know about the Magnificent Seven, but something held them back. What was it? Yeah, it's 100 percent solvency risk. So capital markets for refinancings were closed. Uh, for uh, basically uh, throughout most of the tightening cycle and since the tightening cycle. So the ability of companies to refinance uh, was non-existent. Then it was existent at very high rates. And now the market's starting to price in that they will be able to refinance at lower rates. And that's why you're starting to see some buoyancy uh, in small caps. And then you also had, uh, what is the weighting? The weighting is financials and uh, is energy. In terms of financials, the real risk was the um, uh, bond portfolio, not the credit portfolio, but the bond portfolio. Because of the COVID stimulus, they had record deposits and they were forced to put money to work at the exact wrong time when uh, money was, you know, cost of capital was zero. So they had to buy, they wanted to be safe. They bought, they're like, how can we be safe with all this deposit money? We got to reinvest it. Well, let's put it in treasuries. Well, <laughs> little did they know, even the ones that were out five to seven years uh, got smoked because uh, Powell came in after buying bonds in the face of inflation and overshooting on the other side uh, than uh, the steepest uh, hiking cycle in over 40 years. And it blew up their portfolios and they were underwater on all the mark to markets for their portfolio. So as bonds have rallied in the last several months, uh, those uh, mark, to, mark to market and uh, balance sheet marks have improved as uh, yields have started to come down and bond prices have gone up. So now small caps can start to perform because those uh, uh, banks are, are in a better condition. Also, deposit flight has alleviated as 
the deposit rates start to become slightly more competitive relative to what they could get in T-bills. And as people sniff out, uh, Fed, Fed is going to cut, more and more money uh, will come out and, and will also start to come out of money markets, which is currently $8.8 trillion. Um, it's interesting, early last year, everyone was pounding the table. Uh, it's a no-brainer. Why would you take any risk when you could get 5% doing nothing? And I like to think about what what is the pain trade. So I said to myself, well, how can the most people uh, get hurt, which is the pain trade at any one point in time? And I said, well, they can't get hurt if rates keep going higher per se, because their bonds will mature within a year. So they'll, they might have some temporary unrealized losses. They won't get hurt if bonds rally uh, because they've already locked in that rate for 12 months. So how would they really get destroyed? And uh, the only way they could have gotten destroyed is if equities dramatically outperformed 5%. And what did you see on the S&P 500? Mid-20s. So everyone who went for the obvious trade got smoked. And what's the obvious trade right now uh, is Magnificent 7, AI narrative, the whole thing. And again, I think Magnificent 7 is going to do fine. I just think it's going to be a lot. I think it's going to be deadish money relative to some of the opportunities uh, that we've discussed in small and mid and maybe XUS as well. Uh, let's talk about the uh, tech stocks for just a minute. Layoffs are continuing just today. Um, Google announced more cuts following Amazon and other companies like um, Twitch, for example. So it, it's it, are these company specific layoffs that we're talking about that just people cutting the fat making themselves more efficient or are we seeing a wider systemic issue in the labor market uh, I think this is you had basically a year of efficiency in 2023 for tech companies after they got smoked in 2022 and that is starting to uh, wind down number one number two is they're talking about um, AI leading to greater productivity, uh, that is deflationary. And it, you know, as we increase productivity uh, through AI and through other technologies, that's deflationary. So I think what happened is you saw massive overhiring in COVID. Pe people were paying any price for any warm body uh, in the tech industry, and they're just kind of reverting back to the mean. Uh, and this is the tail end of that, largely speaking. Okay. The ISM Manufacturing Survey um, PMI index at 47.4. It's below 50, which is contractionary, not expanding. Uh, is this a concern for you? Uh, manufacturing has been in a recession for over 24 months, so uh, it's not news. Uh, I think that'll be the laggard to, to start to uh, get back into expansion. But we have had rolling recessions, you know, whether it was tech in 2022, uh, manufacturing all throughout the process. Um, and, uh, and, and we've managed through it. So I, I think on balance, this is the, a great example of Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold. You had, you have tech running hot now, but you have manufacturing running cold. You had banks running cold last year. Now they're starting to recover as their mark to markets recover. You had credit markets closed, uh, forcing solvency risk on many a good portion of the small and mid cap uh, universe now credit markets are opening and uh, pricing in lower lower rates moving forward uh, you had people unable to buy a new home uh, last year because of mortgage rates well those are going to start to come down and even the slightest ticks down you're seeing huge jumps in mortgage applications so i think that's going to persist uh, into 
2024 as well. I think what we need to step back again to zoom out, David, is the fact that it's very hard to get bearish when you have the vast majority of your population age 33 to 34. If you look throughout history uh, across the world, any major uh, country or economy that had the bulk of their population at 33, 34 had a tremendous uh, economy and stock market up until they started to uh, exceed 40 years old in mass because those are the uh, core years of family formation, housing formation, consumption, you move from the city to the suburbs, you have to buy a car, then you have to buy a second car, then you have to buy a crib, then you have to buy a washing machine, refrigerator, couch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you know the story. And you can trace that throughout the last hundred years, uh, the, the last two major secular bulls of 48 to 68, and then 82 to 2000 were all precipitated by having a bulk of our population in that demographic. And right now we're about halfway through that 18 year cycle. Uh, so we have some normal mid cycle consolidation, uh, which we had in 2021 to 2023. Uh, and now it looks like we are gonna resume the uptrend in coming years. Let's close off this discussion on positioning for 2024. So we talked about uh, large caps versus small caps. We talked about the economy. Which sectors in particular do you like most, Thomas? Well, I like, I like discrete idiosyncratic opportunities. And the first one I want to talk to you about is PayPal. Uh, you know me long enough. I love stuff that's uh, high quality, but beaten up and out of favor. PayPal's down 80%. And the catalyst now is a new CEO, uh, Alex Chris, who came from Intuit. He was responsible for the small business unit at Intuit. 50% uh, of the revenues during his tenure, the stock was a 38 bagger. Uh, went from $18 to $707. Uh, so basically what he's going to do, he's going to have a, he's only been in since uh, September 27th. He's having a major conference call on the 25th of January. He says he's going to shock the world, end quote. Uh, we revolutionized the payments industry 20 years ago. We're going to do it again. Uh, the the interesting thing is to have a stock down 80% from its recent peaks, you would think there's solvency risk, there's uh, declining revenues, declining margins, negative cash flow. Just the opposite is true in every single instance. The key thing is it's the multiples re-rated. It used to trade at 30 times because it was a perceived growth company. Now it trades at you know 12 times forward because it's a value company and his uh, growth plan, which he laid out in the last couple of months, is to get back to uh, um, a growth company and profitable growth moving forward. So they just hired, they just fired, uh, millions of customers in Latin America that were non-profitable. They still have 428 million accounts around the world. And the, the, the other reason they got derated was they have a business called Braintree. You know, a lot of people say, when's the last time I used PayPal? Well, when's the last time you took an Uber? because they have the Uber account through Braintree. That's the white label business. Uh, they have Ticketmaster, they have Adobe, they have Booking.com. And the problem with that business is the margins were contracting and because they were the bulk of the volume, they took the overall company margins down, even though cash flow is improving, earnings are improving, revenues are improving. He said on the last call that he believes Q4 was the inflection and they've added value to customers that they can now start to gain 
price in addition to share. Uh, currently, that business has $500 billion of the $5 trillion global enterprise business around the world, which is about 10% of all global transactions on the white label. And then on the PayPal and the Venmo, Venmo has become a verb. So they now have Venmo teams. They're going to roll out that business and that branding even bigger and better. Uh, and I'll be very interested to see what he has to say about data and AI on the 25th. I think we're going to be positively shocked and surprised. And all you need when you have growing cash flow, when you have stabilizing margins, when you have growing revenue, all you need is a catalyst to re-rate the multiple. And I think that's going to be imminent, uh, if not on the call on the 25th, then as we see earnings over the next couple of quarters, and he implements the plan that he's laid out in the last three months. You know your company's made it when the title, when the name has become a verb. Yeah. Uh, yes, but good points. Uh, what about fixed income with rates expected to fall? How do you feel about bonds? Bonds we were interested in September, October. We uh, we actually bought TLT, a uh, very simple way to express it. Uh, we think they've taken a breather, but we do think that the trend is going to be up, meaning lower yields and higher prices for uh, the 10 year and beyond. So, um, but you know, we, we had the biggest amount of the move in the shortest period of time in the rear view mirror. So we'd rather express it a different way uh, through some of the dividend stocks that have been left behind. Um, uh, you know, we've had, um, you know, we have City, which we did, which we wrote about in this week's article. We have that from the low 40s, uh, Generac, Stanley Black & Decker, all these companies that over-purchased inventory during COVID have worked through that in the first second and third quarters in 2023 and now are getting back to uh, well-oiled machines just throwing off huge amounts of cash they're all starting to recover and some of them were up 40 50 percent in the last uh, eight weeks of uh, of 2023 and they're going to persist higher in 2024 and those are the areas that no one's looking at so we would play bonds through kind of bond proxies or dividend stocks that have uh, been part of the uh, um, mediocre 493 versus the magnificent seven, and uh, and I think that the opportunity is going to be in the mediocre 493 moving forward. And finally, uh, any other asset classes outside of uh, bonds and stocks that we've discussed that potentially could do well, in your opinion? Uh, I well, this is not our game, but uh, I would be long non. U.S. dollar. So emerging market mm. currencies relative to U.S. dollar, China yuan relative to U.S. dollar, Japanese yen relative to U.S. dollar. Uh, I think that uh, the dollar downtrend that began, uh, call it um, October of 2022, and has had a few fits and starts and uh, counter trend moves. We just recently had a counter trend move. Uh, is going to resume resume its downward trajectory. And on that basis, you can be long euro, Canadian dollar, Australian dollar, yen, yuan, uh, and the like. And uh, and that, that sets up a whole different regime of opportunities, uh, particularly emerging markets and um, um, many of the companies that have been uh, left out in the cold. Excellent. Thomas, where can you follow your work and read your insights? Yeah, I think I'm uh, most outside of uh, managing money for clients at Great Hill Capital. Uh, I'm what most well known for the podcast Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. You can watch it, the video version, because we do do a lot of charts at YouTube. Just uh, type in Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. 
uh, or anywhere you get your podcasts, you can listen, Apple, Spotify, etc. And then our uh, website, just put your email in and you'll get all that email to you on a daily basis at hedgefundtips.com. On the right-hand side, you'll see a place to stick in your email. You can un unsubscribe at any time, but uh, those are the best ways to, to get a hold of us. We'll put the links down below as well as the links to our prior interviews, Thomas, so people can know just how good you are. Thank you <laughs> well, thanks so much, David. I appreciate it. And we're back. I always get such great feedback from David Lynn. So check out his channel. I'll have all the links and everything else. Now, this um, video I did from the Puerto Rico conference, um, it's similar to the one I did last week. So if you listened to the podcast last week, the whole way through and listened to the 30 minute money show presentation, this is very similar, different spin, obviously, in front of a live crowd, added a little new data. So if you either don't remember, it's my 2024 outlook and top three picks. This is opinion, not advice. This is just what we're doing, not what you should do. Check with your financial advisor. Um, but I think you'll find it really, really valuable. If you did listen to the whole thing and took notes last week, you can skip over this 30 minutes. But if you didn't or if you weren't able to pay attention closely, I would strongly urge you to listen to this one instead. And I think you're going to get tremendous value out of it. So here we go. Great to be in Puerto Rico. Uh, it's been 20 years since I was actually last in Puerto Rico. And uh, I was on the elevator yesterday and a lady with a Texas accent said, um, we watch Succession a lot. Are you Greg? <laughs> the tall skinny guy said, look, I'm very flattered if you think I'm that young, but do I really have that stupid look on my face? <laughs> uh, I hope not. Uh, first off, I want to thank John and Jerrion because we met on the Clayton Countdown on Fox Business and we were talking, I was talking about a stock called VF Corp, which I'm not going to talk about today, but we are along that. That's a turnaround situation. Uh, and I said, John, I love your stuff. Would you be willing to come on my podcast in a couple of weeks? And he said, sure, I'd be happy to. And uh, he came on for about 20 minutes, got absolute rave reviews. I can't wait to get your book, by the way. I got so much positive feedback from that podcast. I hope a lot of people went over to your site and got some of your education. One of the best educators in the business. And he introduced me to Chris, uh, who I'm very grateful for. And, and uh, Chris said, uh, you know, would you come down this week? I said, I'd love to. I have one ask. And he goes, what's that? I was like, could you get me on Dorado to play 18? And uh, sure enough, he delivered. We had an amazing time at Dorado yesterday. Uh, I'm just curious because this is Puerto Rico and I was around Dorado and there's a lot of big houses on the golf course. And as, as we were going through, I was like, how did he make his money? How did he make his money, et cetera, et cetera. How many people in this room have made a lot of money in crypto? Yeah. So it's about 50% of the island. Uh, I hope the both of gentlemen that uh, Chris hooked me up with, but uh, uh, he, he's made a lot of money in, in crypto and actually gave me a nice education on some of the apps and everything that are gonna be coming down the pipe. Um, so today what I wanna do is really deliver some value. And the reason I say this also to a community that's made a lot of money in crypto is that uh, what I noticed is that you want to have some level of diversification. Most people are in crypto, continue to expect that it will continue to go up, and that certainly may and will, will be true. I have no 
you or Special Edge on crypto, I'm an equity guy. But what I am noticing with the folks that have made 100, 200, even a billion dollars in that group is that they are laying off some portion into other asset classes just as a hedge. So when you have your crypto winters before you have the crypto rallies, um, you don't have to think about it. You know, you're kind of set up for life and you have some diversification and then you can ride through that volatility uh, as you have your continued uptrend. So um, I'm gonna give you three picks that we have our clients in right now. Two are pretty new positions so you can get in uh, without even paying me. Uh, but again, this is opinion, not advice. So I'm gonna lay out the case, the fundamental case. Uh, unlike you crypto folks, we're not looking for a thousand percent in the next 12 months. <laughs> we're, we're just looking to consistently outperform over time at fees. Uh, and I think we do a decent job of that. So um, why should you listen to me? Uh, as John said, I have a decade and a half in the hedge fund business, long short equity. Um, my firm is called Great Hill Capital. It's based in New York City. I live in Connecticut uh, and New York actually. And uh, you know, fortunate to meet great people like John through some of the media uh, appearances that Chris talked about. I'm most regularly on Fox Business. Who, who watches Charles Payne or Liz Clayman? Fantastic shows, fantastic hosts. I highly recommend them. Um, and then prior to that, has anyone seen The Big Short? Okay, so I worked with a group called Cornwall Capital before I went out on my own. Uh, I worked directly for the gentleman played by Brad Pitt. I can attest that this gentleman, who is called Ben Rickett in the movie, his last name is different in real life, is much more intelligent than Brad Pitt, but a lot less handsome, uh, to, to, to put it mildly. And, and uh, I stay in touch with those guys regularly, some of the smartest guys in the business for sure. They do a lot with derivatives like John uh, and our experts in that space, if you remember from the, the movie with credit default swaps, etc. Um, prior to that, I was with a firm called Bedford Oak Advisors. And as an analyst, I was actually put into one of our public company holdings as chief operating officer. And they said, look, I want you to go out, sell off all the non-core assets, and take that cash and buy an asset management firm. So for a year and a half, I interviewed over 100 different asset management firms, RIAs, institutional managers, financial advisors, roll-ups, et cetera. And what I got to see was under the hood. You know, it's, it's amazing when you're gonna give people a lot of money, they tell you a lot of stuff in order to get your money uh, to buy their business. So I got to see all the strategies that work, all the strategies that weren't really durable, that were, were very volatile over time. And that also framed, uh, besides growing up in kind of the value mafia with, um, my first boss was a good friend with Warren Buffett, so we would go out to the annual meetings every year. I uh, kind of grew up uh, at idea lunches with Lee Cooperman and Mary Rebelli and that type of uh, crew. Um, it really gave me an insight into the business and what's durable and what works out over time uh, and what you can count on. And we have a quality value tilt over time, but you're gonna see that we don't do cigar butts. We're not just doing it for liquidation value. We want quality companies that are compounding capital, capital over time when they're out of favor, and we're gonna give you a few of those. Um, we have developed a reputation over time for benefiting from sector, stock, and general market dislocation uh, and periods of distress. We do post a lot of these ideas on our weekly podcast, which is top rated in the hedge fund category. You can just Google hedge fund tips with Tom Hayes, either listen on Apple or Spotify, or better, 
watch it on YouTube because we do a lot of financials, we do a lot of charts, we show you how we're thinking about cash flow statement, balance sheet, income statement, and people get a tremendous amount of value. Most of our clients that haven't been referred from other clients actually come from the podcast. I had huge family offices call me, we've been listening to your podcast for a year, year and a half, we've made a lot of money off your ideas, but that's not our business. You take that money, and if you do a good job, we'll give you more, and that's how we've kind of grown our business. Um, so we make our money buying on weakness and selling on strength. All the algos nowadays are set up to buy on strength and sell on weakness, so that's where you can actually find inefficiencies in the market if you have patience and a stomach and you do your homework. Uh, and our confidence to step in when others are bailing is rooted in the deep research and the premise that the more price becomes dislocated, the more risk that has actually come out of the stock versus gone in. So what's the first thing? When a stock falls, people say, I'm not interested, that's too risky, okay? And one of the things, kind of the key secrets that we look for is free cash flow generation. And over time, if you're dealing with high quality companies that have a history of generating cash, you'll see that cash flow tends to trend up pretty steadily over time. And if you think of a chart like this, uh, however, the price of those companies around that cash flow generation, which is all you're really paying for, is you're giving them money now in exchange for the expected future uh, cash flow down the road, the price in public markets vacillates so widely, one, two, three standard deviations around that cash flow growth. And if you can buy it when it's, you're not gonna get it perfectly, when it's well below, and sell it when it's well above when everyone wants it, that's how you can get some excess returns over time. So, um, most market participants uh, see the volatility as increased risk, we view it as increased opportunity. So when people are running out, it's fire in the theater, we're running back in to see that they've left all the money on their seats and their purses and their wallets are still there, uh, and, and that's that. So uh, I grew up in that value tilt. Uh, Warren Buffett says, great investment opportunities come around when excellent companies are surrounded by unusual circumstances that cause the stock to be misappraised. What's the key word in this quote? Misappraised and also excellent. So sometimes people just buy a company because the stock is down a lot, but it's negative free cash flow, it has balance sheet risk, and, and it could actually be cheap for a reason. Either it has solvency risk, or uh, their business is deteriorated, so it's not temporarily impaired, it could be permanently impaired. And that's what you learn with experience in buying durable companies that have grown the cash flow over time. You know that cash flow is pretty solid. You understand the business, it's just prices become abnormally mispriced either to the downside or upside, either due to mark, temporary market impairments, sector, sectors get out of favor over time, headline risk, uh, that can that can take the stock price down excessively, and that's where you find. So we're all trained markets are efficient, right? That's what they teach us in uh, business school. Except that in the short term, the market is a voting machine, which is based on emotions. Who's felt emotions when you open up your portfolio and one day's down and one day's up, and you want to take action because it's either really red or it's really green? But in the long term you're gonna revert back to that growing cash flow, that price that oscillated too far down is gonna to revert to the mean. And then long term, it's a weighing machine based on fundamentals. Short term emotion, long term fundamentals.
So let's give you the big picture of the market. Who wants to know, uh, is the market going up or down? We don't know, but what we do know is some statistics. So let's take the big picture. What I always tell people uh, that I talk to or even in the podcast is we like to zoom out. Because on a daily basis, it's like NVIDIA did this last night. What do you think? Uh, you know, let's talk about it over the next 6 to 12 to 24 months. So this is generational cycles uh, basically over the last 100 years. And what you can see is that you have periods of sideways chop, okay, so you saw from 1928 to 1948, the market basically went sideways and did nothing, and then you had this period from 1948 to 1968 where the market went straight up, then the 70s from 78, uh, from 1968 to 1982, the market basically did nothing, went sideways, then the huge bull market, which some of you experienced from 1982 to 2000, who was participating in that, okay? And then basically from 2000 to 2013, the market again went sideways. So what drives this? This is, by the way, from Robert Slumer, CFA, he's at uh, RBC, okay, so you can follow his work. But we were talking about this in 2020 before he put these beautiful graphics together with it. Uh, I'm not a graphic guy, I'm kind of a numbers guy, so uh, anything that looks pretty like this, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna you know, use that and give them some credit for it. Um, so basically what this implies is that we are halfway through a secular bull cycle that probably has another eight to 12 years ahead, to so the early 2030s to 2034, if history is any guide. This is based on demographics. So effectively in those years like the most recent one from 2000 to 2013 you had generation x which was only 65 million people relative to boomers who were 80 million so demand dropped which is why they were able to print so much money and um not cause huge inflation up until recently why are we getting inflation recently because of the millennials the generation that came after me is a big generation again, the, uh, and they're you know, 72, 75, they're all in the family formation years, the early 30s, which drives consumption. You turn 33, you move out of the city, you have kids, you get married, you have to buy a car, you have to buy a second car, you have to buy a washing machine, you have to buy a refrigerator, you have to buy a house, you have to pay the landscaper, and this drives growth. And every single one of these instances, 48 to 68, 82 to 2000, uh, 2013 through 2033, 2034, is driven by a bulge in the population age 33, 34, and that boom in the economy and stock market lasts till they turn about 40, 41, 42, 43. And that's why we believe this runway is accurate moving forward. Uh, people have been saying recently, the market is going to crash hard or correct hard because we just had this huge nine or 10 week rally, right? Doesn't feel like the market's got up every day since uh, basically October, and everyone's been bracing for this correction. But if you, again, zoom out, what you'll see is that the market has actually made 0% gains in the last two years. So we had a huge rally off the COVID lows, we peaked in 2000, late 2021, and we basically got sideways consolidating those massive gains uh, up until recently, and we're just now breaking out to new highs. I would say that doesn't mean you can't check back and you can't have some volatility and chop, but it's very hard to short new highs. Uh, the, the odds are against you, and generally, 
you know, if you look in, the, in terms of the short term, breaking out to new highs, and in terms of the long term secular bull, which we're halfway through, this secular bull doesn't mean we're not going to get 10 and 20% corrections between now and 34. We're going to get them all day long. But it does mean that you want to be a buyer, not a seller. It's not a secular uh, type of uh, situation like you had from 2000 to 2013 or during the 70s. Uh, to John's point about the election returns, he went back to 1952. That was really valuable data, John. Uh, we're going back to 1928, and we come out to the same conclusion. The gains this year should be more subdued. High single digits to low double digits. The average of an election year since 1928 is 11.28%. So reason to be optimistic. Here is the pattern of all election years, which is the gray line, which shows the beginning of the year is more subdued. However, in years, election years that the gains the year before uh, were up 10% or more, you get outperformance up till about mid-February. On average, this doesn't, this is not cast in stone, this is probabilistic uh, ideas. And then you do get some type of pullback in February and March before finishing in the year high single digits, low double digits. So do we trade on this? No. But are we cognizant if we have a lot of money to put to work? Um, you know, we may wait for softer periods of money to work, uh, we keep it in the back of our mind, okay? But we deal mostly on a company-by-company company basis. We're not risk-on, risk-off, buying the market, selling the market. We're buying good quality businesses when they're on sale, and then playing the time arbitrage game to wait till they realize full value. And the reason we can wait to realize full values is because we don't use much leverage, so therefore uh, we're never losing sleep because we're buying high-quality businesses and just waiting. Uh, and most people get into trouble, like, Buffett said, uh, Charlie Munger used to say, there are three killers, uh, <laughs> ladies, liquor, and leverage. I would say ladies are just fine. Stick to one is probably a good idea. That's worked well for me. Uh, liquor, I would, you know, moderate, I guess, is the way to go. Uh, but leverage, leverage can kill a lot of really smart people. And some of the smartest people in the world, if, who remembers long-term capital management? Okay? Beware of geeks bearing formulas, okay? Maybe these are the smartest guys in the room that will blow up the world. So, um, something to keep in mind. The 10-year cycle, this goes back to the late uh, 1900s, 1897. The fourth year, as you can see, the second year is very weak on average. We had that in 2022. Uh, last year, the third year of the cycle is strong, which we had last year. And then this year, it tends to be a little choppy and then we finish up. I think that's going to uh, hold true. <coughs> Earnings are strong. Uh, margins are actually starting to re-accelerate. They're expected to uh, grow 60 basis points this year. Why? Because CEOs prepared last year for a recession that never came. They cut costs like crazy. Now they're getting the benefit of those cost cuts. And they actually were preparing for a recession that happened in 2022, where we had a technical recession, John. First two quarters, absolutely agree. That doesn't foreclose on the, on the idea that John pointed to. There's a possibility we could get a recession this year. But when we look at the inverted yield curve, uh, certainly the, the, first, the last few instances, it's a, it's a recession within six to 18 months. However, if you go back to a comparable period, 1980 and 1982, the last time we had a hiking cycle this aggressive, um, you, that second inversion, we got the inversion just before 2020, that second inversion actually spawned one of the greatest uh, bull markets in history because Volcker stopped tightening, and once he stopped tightening, like Jay Powell has indicated he's gonna start this year, we were off to the races. So I, I would be constructive here, both zooming out and in the short term based on where we are. We've kind of consolidated a lot of games over the last two years. Uh, let's get down to some picks. 
People, people talk about money contraction, and that's the reason you know money supply hasn't contracted as much since the Great Depression, except we're $2 trillion above trend. There's still a lot of liquidity in the system that has to be worked off over the next few years. It's another reason we remain constructive. The implication of this cycle to the early 2030s being bullish is, um, if you look at the last two cycles, would put the S&P at 13,000 to 14,000 if it passes any prologue by 2023-2024, so that's a lot of upside gain when you consider where we are right now. Uh, okay, first pick, PayPal. Okay, now I hope that the three picks that I'm gonna give you are gonna cause you a little bit of indigestion and hopefully not too much of your breakfast comes up in front of you as I go through them. So here's a stock that's down 80%, okay? And you have to think, any stock that's down 80% should have revenues doing what? Going down. What about cash flow, positive or negative? Negative, what about earnings? Okay, well, <laughs> the exact opposite is true with PayPal. Cash flow per share is growing. Earnings per share is growing. Uh, um, revenue per share is growing. So what is actually the problem? Why is this stock down 80 some odd percent? You can say, well, because of crypto. No one's ever gonna make a payment again. We're just gonna Bitcoin back and forth to each other. Um, there may be some of that, but the problem is actually fear about declining margins and increased competition. Now, they have a business called Braintree. A lot of people say to me, well, I understand why PayPal's down. I haven't used PayPal in over a year or over two years. How many of you took an Uber in the last month? Okay, well, they have the Uber account. They have the Booking.com account. They have the Adobe accounts. It's through white label, so you don't see that you're paying PayPal. But Braintree does $500 billion of the $5 trillion of global enterprise spending around the world. Uh, and they've got uh, most major companies in that. The, 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 what, what happened as a result of that acquisition is their market started to, to decline, even though their overall revenues were going up, their overall cash flow, their overall earnings. Um, and the new CEO, Alex Chris, who came from Intuit, uh, implied that that inflection started to take place in Q4. There's gonna be a major conference call for PayPal tomorrow. I believe it's at 9.30 a.m. Pacific time. And he said in this conference call, he said, 20 years ago, PayPal revolutionized the world in terms of payments. On January 25th, we're going to shock the world. Now, that's a tall statement. However, this comes from a credible guy. Um, Alex Chris ran the small business division at Intuit. He was responsible for 50% of the revenue. During his tenure there, Intuit was a 38 bagger. So if you put in a million, you got 38 million. Okay, that is a big trade. He was responsible for a lot of the growth. Um, and he's been in since late September. He's gonna turn around this company. PayPal generated 5.2 million of free cash flow. In the last 12 months alone, they bought $5 billion of stock. They're gonna to continue to do that, which means more earnings per share, more revenue per share, more cash flow per share, because there are gonna be a lot less shares. So the margins are stabilizing. They're firing unprofitable customers, only Latin American customers that they weren't making money. He fired them, he said, we want profitable growth only. Uh, they've got 428 million active accounts around the world. 
10% of global enterprise spend. Their total payment volume was up 15% last quarter year on year for such a big company that's huge. Revenues were up 8%, buybacks have done. Uh, they've got a stable coin. I don't even know what that means, but people are excited about it. PayPal, USD, and, uh, and Venmo's a verb. It's like Kleenex. Venmo is, is continuing to accelerate their Venmo team, focus on profitable growth, cut expenses, implement efficiency. Disney, another boring company. Everyone say, uh, you know, it's down because of some of their program is, is, is not ideal. Uh, their parks are stale, their creativity is dead. You've heard all the stories. This is, they have the best parks in the world. They have the best historic content library in the world. The same thing happened in 1984, okay? Their parks were tired. Uh, they, they had this classic IP, but they weren't creating any new movies. The Bass family, who knows the Bass family from Texas, big oil family, they came in with a $300 million investment in 1984. They had the exact same problems. The stock had done nothing since 1973. So for 11 years, the stock did nothing. Bass came in, they appointed Michael Eisner, and the turnaround included a new technology to sell their old content library. You know what that new technology was? The VHS cassette. So they took this legacy great content they had, they repackaged it, resold it, and had a whole new income stream that lasted for 20 years. They quadrupled profits in 10 years. That 300 million became $5.8 billion. But by the way, uh, so moving along. Uh, so same, you know what, different date, it works. Uh, theme parks they're investing in. Just the theme parks alone is worth $80 a share. It's trading at 90 and change right now. That implies ESPN, Disney Plus, theatrical movies, uh, Hulu, and the TV networks are worth zero. We think they're worth a lot more because ESPN actually grew their share in the last quarter. They will monetize that. Um, they've cut costs, and uh, we think this can actually be a double over the next 24 to 36 months. Value Act is involved. They also turned around. Uh, uh, Spotify and New York Times with their tier pricing, which they're now doing with the bundle with Hulu, Disney Plus, and guess what? They're going to sell the old content with a new technology called streaming, and that's going to drive the bus for the next 18 years as well. Uh, final one here is emerging markets, Alibaba. This one, if, if the other two didn't get you to repeat your breakfast uh, in front of you, this one certainly will. This company, uh, it's from 2014 IPO to 2022, they grew revenues per share by 900%, cash flow per share by 500%, earnings per share by 500%. Guess how much the stock went up? Zero percent. Okay, there's been one instance of a company like this that I can think of that was comparable was Microsoft. Microsoft from 2000 and Six to 2013, they doubled revenues. Uh, cash flow was up, per share was up 200% over that period. Earnings were up 120%, the stock did zero. Now, here's what's interesting. Over the next period, after those years of sideways consolidation, the stock was up 1,500% under Satya Nadella. Do you know Satya's performance over that next period was not much greater than Bomber's performance when the stock did nothing. It got re-rated with the multiple. That's what we think is happening with PayPal and Disney and Alibaba. Uh, we're at capitulation levels, ladies and gentlemen. Just to give you this last data point here, uh, foreign buying is at its lowest level since 2015. You can see here what happened the last time foreign buying was this low. No one wanted China stock. 
You got a five-bagger over the next five years. We think we're at that level of capitulation. And we're back to these levels. That first box from 2014 to 16, revenues per share were $6 per share. Now they're $57 per share. Cash flow was $2.93 per share. Now it's $12.15. And earnings per share was $2.60. Now it's $9.12. So in the short term, the market is a voting machine based on emotions. That's where we are now on sentiment. In the long term, it's a weighing machine based on fundamentals. Someone else already paid the price of the last nine years of 0% returns and huge business improvement. They're changing policy. You've seen some of the headlines in the last 24, 48 hours. The government is blinking just like they did on COVID zero. And this is gonna to start to take off. This is also a uh, weakening dollar play emerging markets in general. We buy high quality businesses when they're on sale. So with that said, thank you so much. Obviously opinion, not advice. This is what we're doing, not what you should do. Um, talk to your financial advisor. That's the podcast. That's how to reach me. Thank you so much. And we're back. A uh, couple news notes of uh, importance. Um, just want to make sure that I've got everything here. Yes. And first off, uh, so you saw Alibaba popped up, uh, was like 68 or 67. Now it's back up to 75 in a couple of days. A couple of good things happening. Number one, Jack Ma and Joe Tsai, the founders, uh, current chairman, uh, former founder, bought $200 million of stock personally. Uh, Joe, uh, uh, um, uh, Jack Ma bought 50 million. Joe Tsai bought 150 million. So um, that's a step in the right direction. Also, you have the government finally panicking like they finally did with COVID and they did an about face. They're doing that with the markets. Chinese stock surge as Premier Li signals forceful measures to halt trillion dollar market route. Next, pummeled China ETFs jump after report Beijing may support its ailing stock market. China appears to backpedal from video game crackdown. So they did a complete about face. Jack Ma buys Alibaba stock to show support for struggling empire. China property stocks jump as Beijing steps closer to boost liquidity in the beleaguered sector. So I'm going through all these. If you're listening, it's New York Times, it's uh, 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 South China Morning Post, it's Bloomberg, it's New York Times. So uh, I'm reading some of these headlines. You can read the articles. They're all on my site, hedgefundtips.com. China stocks are the world's best value proposition, according to GavCal. They're a major kind of macro writer in Hong Kong that all have put out great research for two decades. Uh, China moves to boost bank lending in broad effort to prop up growth. And finally, Proud Mary stock market and sentiment results. So this was a song by Credence Clearwater Revival. And when I was thinking about the market today, all that came to mind was big wheel keep on turning, proud Mary keep on burning, rolling, rolling, rolling down the river. Uh, Fogarty, who wrote it, was um, said, quote, it was obviously a metaphor about leaving painful, stressful things behind for a more tranquil and meaningful life. This is a metaphor for the market breaking out to new highs after two years of choppy consolidation of gains. We have referred to this chart repeatedly as a deterrent from getting too cute or short the market after the turn of the year. So we covered this in recent weeks. You know, we had the two-year consolidation from 11 to 13, two years of rally, two-year consolidation from 15 to 16 and a half, 
one and a half year rally, two year consolidation from 18 uh, to the end of 19. We had started to rally and then COVID came. So that was the wah, 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 doesn't work every time. And then finally, we had the huge gains off the COVID lows consolidated for two years with zero returns in the stock market. And everyone was saying short because they were struck by this little line here of recency bias, which was a nine week rally for you technicians. That would be a quote cup and handle. Uh, we notice them. We don't pay a lot of attention to them, but we do respect them. But the one thing that we did emphasize in our public appearances on Fox was that it's very short, hard to short new highs. Wouldn't get too cute with the shorts or hedging when we did it around the beginning of the year. And we're going to go into some of these. Here is our October 22nd, 2022, excuse me, October 17, 2022 uh, media appearance uh, when the market was uh, right there at the lows. Uh, you can see what we were saying. There are no sellers left. And then I have the whole segment talking about how positioning was as low as it had been since the 2000 great 2009 great financial crisis lows and the COVID lows and the positioning. And I said, there are no sellers left. No one's positioned for anything uh, to go right. We're buying. Uh, you should listen to that because that was, a you know, in hindsight, this looks easy. In the moment, uh, it was very lonely and uh, for a lot of people, scary. And we stuck to our guns there and, um, and you see what's, what happened next. Uh, then in uh, same thing last fall of last year, you got the you know big rally uh, from 2022 lows to uh, the summer of 2023. And then you had a 10 or 11% correction into the end of October, early November. And we were on the claim and countdown uh, and people were very skeptical to which I replied to Liz. I said, Liz, my only message is if you're a short seller right now, what you need to know into year end is the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> and uh, that was an update in the market. And I was like, this is going to continue through year end and beyond. And that's exactly what happened next. Uh, and then, and now it's going to get a little trickier. As everyone was calling for big correction after the year end rally, I joined Charles Payne on January 8th to say, uh, quote, new highs before we get a normal correction. We've now got the new highs. But I don't get the sense that we've drawn everyone in. I think we got to go up a few more percent, draw everyone in, get the perma bears, the guys who have been the most negative and gals since 2022 lows and 2023 lows to start to get constructive. And that's when uh, we want to be a little more cautious. Maybe we'll find a few asymmetric shorts uh, that we express with long premium. And maybe uh, we do some hedges or maybe we just wait it through. We'll see what the conditions look like and we'll see what our businesses look like relative to intrinsic value uh, and our targets that we enter before we ever get in. We got new highs. So now what? Statistically, the shorter term roadmap from historical data is playing out, which would imply a bit more upside to draw in all of the resistant bears from October 22nd and October 23rd uh, through now. Once they have flipped, a healthy pullback should be in order. So this would be in years, election years after 10% gains in the previous year. And this you know, tends to go statistically through mid-February drawing people in. You could see some weakness in late January, which could be another fake out. Uh, and then a final high in early to mid-February before you get a normal pullback. 
and then strength into the end of the year. So you can just sit, you know, you probably probably just sit it out, go away for a few weeks in March, don't even think about it, and then come back at the end of the year to nice positive returns. Um, uh, we covered David Lynn, we covered Puerto Rico. 3M reported, uh, people puked out the stock left and right. Uh, we picked some up today, we picked some up yesterday. Uh, we were hoping to get mid 80s and uh, high 80s, and we think we still might, in which case we'll be able to add. This is a complete overshoot. The bottom line is these guys have been in the fetal position getting kicked in the ribs for three years with their legal stuff, with the PFAS, uh, with the forever, uh, the forever chemicals and the earplugs, and now they're settling all that stuff down, and they can get back to what made them great, which is innovation, investing in the company, uh, they've uh, made the company more efficient and they're going to get focused on the things. But in the meantime, they're generating six and a half to seven billion dollars a year of operating cash flow. They've raised the dividend for over 65 consecutive years. You can get in the stock and get a six and a half percent dividend while you wait for the company to double over the next three to five years. So we like that. And you know what? The guy did exactly what he said he was going to do. Uh, for 2023 guidance and 24 guidance is going to be even better. And what did they do? They sold the stock off because that's just what emotional day traders in the short term. It's a voting machine based on emotions like I emphasized over and over in Puerto Rico. In the long term, it's a weighing machine based on fundamentals. And the fundamentals are just fine, certainly relative to the price. And all the bad things that people say in the company are obviously reflected in largely in the price. Uh, down 60%, which is why we're interested at these levels and have been building a position at these levels uh, over time is because over time we get paid to wait and we're going to have a double. And the only question is going to be the IRR. Does it take us two years? Does it take us three years? Uh, but, you know, even four years would be a, a respectable IRR when you throw in the dividend, which is also going to continue to grow. So you can go through these line by line and see the reason why we're holding fast there and using the opportunity to our advantage. Um, and then finally, short-term sentiment, a little stretched. Uh, bullishness came down a little bit on the retail traders. Fear and greed is at extreme greed. So a little bit of giddiness, but that's what you wanna see uh, coming off of a big rally. Just keep pushing people in. And then the National Association of Active Investment Managers, they've been puking out some stock. So if we do keep pushing higher, they'll chase the last bit. And that should be the end in the short term uh, for a nice little pullback. Consumer staples, top 30 weights, earnings, uh, revisions in the last 60 days up 2.94%. So earnings are actually going up which is why I think you're, as the earnings season goes forward, you're going to see better and better outcomes. Consumer discretionary, the exact same thing. Earn, top 30 weights, earnings up 3.28%. Uh, we saw the GDP was better than expected this morning. Uh, jobless claims were a little higher than expected. So um, kind of this is the economy's running hot, but there were some inventory issues. Uh, it's not a completely clean number. The initial jobless claims should um, uh, raise an eyebrow for the Fed about keeping things too restrictive too long. And then tomorrow we have core PC, which I think is going to be the most important because what that's going to show on a three month and six month annualized basis is core uh, PCE, which is the metric they use, is uh, now annualized at 1.6 and 1.9% respectively. And then they're going to figure out that their biggest risk is deflation, which is hard to cure and very costly 
versus inflation, which is easier to cure uh, and, they, and they know how to do that. So uh, that should be reflected in the uh, January 31st Fed meeting next week, where I do think we're going to start to see a lot of talk about tapering down the taper, meaning stop selling all the bonds to drain liquidity on the open market uh, and maybe some hint around um, cuts, but they don't really have any advantage to hint around cuts until they actually do them, keep that arrow in the quiver. But I would like to see some talk about uh, stopping or, or reducing the, the uh, quantitative tightening, and I think the market would like to see it. Today, PayPal did their 17-minute announcement, and, um, uh, and um, the five or six items that they announced, I think, were spectacular. I think that shocked the world uh, in the short term, before you can talk about the results of the implementation, uh, probably set the bar too high. So it was a buy the rumor, sell the news. But I, I see this thing getting bid now uh, after the news. And I think when people actually process the implications of this, I mean, at the end of the day, if they had no conference call, the way they're growing cash flow, if all that happened was what Alex Chris intimated, which is the brain tree margins, the white label business, $500 billion a year of processing, 10% of global enterprise spend uh, inflected and those margins stopped going down and they actually, their stabilizers started going up. That's all you need. Now you got these six amazing turbocharged things that could absolutely revolutionize the company and could shock the world, but we're not gonna know if we're shocked or we're not shocked for another 12 months, 18 months. Uh, but I will say they were impressive. So go to youtube.com go to the paypal channel watch the 17 minute video i think you'll be as impressed as i was uh we're not doing ask me anything questions this week we'll catch up on them next week when we have more time in the meantime we'll be back next week same time same place in the meantime make it a great one bye for now